So if you are joining with us for the first time this morning, welcome. We're super glad to have you with us. Uh, We have been in a series together in the book of Nehemiah. It's a very short series. Uh, We're actually moving into our last week today. And the series is entitled Rebuild, Restore, and Renew. And what we've said over the last couple weeks is that we as a community are moving into a new season that could be entitled Restore, Rebuild, and Renew. We've said again and again that this church has a great history, and there's a beautiful story to tell about our past, and it's a story of growth and vitality. It's a story of Jesus meeting and changing lives. It's a story of young adults and young families being brought into the kingdom of God. It is a story of leaders being raised up and sent out to start churches and nonprofits and to be a faithful presence of the gospel in their homes and their communities. But this is not just a story we want to tell about our past. It's also a story we want told about our future. Amen? And so we want to see God do a continued work in the years ahead. But of course, our, last, our most recent season as a church has not been marked by growth and vitality. It has been marked by decline. And it's been said, and some have attributed it to Einstein. I've been told that uh, by the internet that Einstein did not say this. But then I was also told by the internet that Einstein did say this. So... But the definition of insanity is what? It's to continue to do the same things but expect different results. And we cannot, as a church, continue on the same course, doing the same thing and expect a different outcome. We need to invest in our church becoming a different kind of community. Last week, we talked a bit about what that community might look like. We've talked about becoming an attractional church, the kind of place that my non-Christian friends and neighbors, I want to invite them to, and I won't be embarrassed by the bathrooms or the nursing mom's room or the worship service or something like that, but it's the kind of place that is compelling and beautiful and done with excellence, and not just an attractional church, but a missional church, a church that is engaged in this community. You know, this church sits right in the heart of Sierra Madre. And we have to ask, is it just our facility that sits in this community, or are we actively engaged with neighbors and coworkers and friends and and colleagues as a faithful presence of the gospel in this community? Are we engaged in acts of mercy and justice? We want to be a missional church, but not just a missional church. Uh, We want to be a formational church, a community of people that in our own life together, we're beginning to learn how to do the things that Jesus did. We're actually living lives that are marked by wisdom and beauty, lives that are marked by love and gospel joy, the kind of lives that people who are outside and who are lost and in broken families and broken homes and broken hearts would say, I want to learn how to live from the people in this community. We want to be that kind of church. And then we want to be a church that is not only uh, attractional and formational and missional, but also liturgical. And what we talked about last week was uh, uh, the kind of corporate gatherings, corporate worship services that addresses the mystery deficit in our disenchanted culture, in our disenchanted age. The kind of corporate gatherings where people might walk away and say those words that are found in the book of 1 Corinthians about the gatherings of the church in Corinth, God is truly among you. So this is the kind of community, this is the kind of church we are seeking to rebuild and restore and renew. 
And, and what we're gonna see today is that when we as God's people set about to engage in God's work, in God's way, we can expect to face opposition. I don't know if you noticed, but the sign outside that says the sermon title when you walked in, it said encouraging opposition. And I think in your bulletins it says encouraging opposition. That's actually a typo. It should say encountering opposition. So just for the record, I'm not trying to encourage any opposition. I don't want to encourage you who are resistant, opposers, cynics, naysayers, or whatever. We're not trying to encourage that. But what we are saying is that when you engage in the work of God, when the people of God say, let us arise and build, we can expect opposition. And I think sometimes this can be surprising to us. And it shouldn't be, but sometimes it is. You know, sometimes in my own mind, I can think that I can really see that the hand of God is on my life and in something when things seem to be going smooth. I know in my own story of coming to this church, it's a story really of seeing God's hand of providence move in our family's life, and it seemed like all of the stars aligned and everything kind of came together, and here we are. And of course, sometimes when God is at work among us, that is the very thing that happens. You can see the hand of God's providence on your life by saying, man, it all came. we were trying to adopt and it all came together. The child just came into our lap. You know, we were trying to open up our homes and it seems like neighbors started coming over and, and, and we just brought them in. And all of a sudden, like we were, we were sharing the gospel with people and we were, we were opening up our home and sharing meals and it was fantastic. And it seemed like all of the ducks seemed to align, you know? Is that the way you say it? The ducks line up, the stars align. I don't know. All your ducks are in a row. I guess that's a different kind of saying, right? Yeah, we'll just drop that one. But, but you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes we, we look at that and we can say the good hand of our God is upon us. And of course, even in the book of Nehemiah, we're, we're given warrant for saying that. Nehemiah, after he prayed, he approached the king, and it seemed like just serendipitously. The king said, Nehemiah, what's the matter? And, and he told him, and the king said, well, Nehemiah, we'll help you. We'll provide you all the resources you need. And he's like, well, king, could I ask for a little bit more? Can you give us letters and protection? The king's like, sure, no problem. And he goes, and it seemed like, as he puts it, the good hand of the Lord was upon us, and he could tell because everything went smoothly. But you know... The good hand of God can be upon you, and you can be engaged in the work of God. And in spite of the fact that you are right in the center of God's will, in fact, because sometimes you are in the center of God's will, you can and you will encounter opposition. You should expect it. We will encounter it. Well, Nehemiah, in our chapter that we're gonna be delving into today, tells us something about the nature of this opposition and then he's going to share with us how we can overcome it. So we're going to see something first about the nature of our opposition, and secondly, about how we can overcome it. So let's talk first about the nature of the opposition. Look at Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1. Look at what it says. It says, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry, and he was greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. So in chapter three, Nehemiah and his team start work rebuilding the wall. And now in chapter four, after the work begins, the opposition arises. And it, who does it come from? It comes from these two men who are named Sanballat and Tobiah. 
Now, last week after the sermon, I had somebody come up and they said, hey, you, uh, you read the text right to a point where some of my favorite characters in the Bible are. It's Sanballat and Tobiah. And he said, in fact, there was somebody who I worked with who I gave the name Sanballat because he was such an annoying, such a thorn in my side, such a burr in my saddle, such a, a pebble in my shoe. And I, I thought about this church and I started to think of some of you. I'm just kidding, I didn't. I didn't think that. But I think for many years, I actually did think about Sam Ballot and Tobias as merely kind of these naysayers, the cynics who are out there trying to, you know, stop the work. And, and uh, they're just kind of these personal, annoying people in Nehemiah's life. But actually, they're a lot bigger problem than all of that. Sanballat and Tobiah were actually regional leaders around Jerusalem. In fact, if you uh, look at a map of the area, whoops, let's get here. If you notice right here where I drew a circle, that is where Jerusalem's at. This is where Nehemiah is building the walls. Sanballat is a regional leader, a tribal leader, with a strong militia over the, the area of Samaria. Tobiah is over the area of Ammon. He was a very affluent, very wealthy, very established leader. And then in chapter six, we get a number of other leaders who are down here in the south. Now, what do you notice about the opposition that Nehemiah is facing? It's scary because it is all around. And this is the nature of opposition. Very often it comes from all sides. It is all around. And I want you to see that the opposition is not only all around them, the opposition for Nehemiah is constant. It is incessant. You know, uh, Nehemiah, most scholars will tell us um, the, the primary source of Ezra and Nehemiah is a personal memoir of Nehemiah. And what's interesting about his memoir is how he tells the story of the rebuilding of the wall. Because he could tell it in a wide variety of ways, but what sticks out, especially in the first six chapters, which narrate basically him mobilizing the troops to build the wall, is that at every turn when they set to the work, opposition arises. And so, for example, in chapter 2, verse 9, after he gets the king's money and he gets some resources and troops, he travels into the city. And right when he arrives, notice in the very next verse what it says, the opposition arise. But when Sanballat and Tobiah heard this, it displeased them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And then in chapter 2, 18, Nehemiah cast the vision to the people. And he says, let us arise and build. And the people say, let us arise and build. And the very next verse, the opposition. But when Sanballat and Tobiah heard this, they jeered at us and they despised us. And then in chapter three, it narrates the people setting to work, building this wall and this wall and this gate and that gate and this family and that family and this, that they're building, building, building. And then the opposition arises in four verse one. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged and he jeered at the Jews. And then when they get halfway through the project, verse chapter six, or chapter four, verse six, they built the wall to half its height for the people had a mind to work and then look at the opposition. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, see the group is growing, isn't it? 
heard that the repairing of the walls is going forward, they were very angry and they all plotted together to come and to fight against Jerusalem. And then in chapter six, verse one, the breaches of the wall are finally all repaired. The job is almost done. And then chapter six says, now when Sanballat and Tobiah and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no more breaches left, they intended to do me harm. And then they go in this big plot to try to have him assassinated. And so do you see, at every turn, as the work moves forward, the opposition arises. And we're learning something here about the nature of opposition. And it's simply this. Whenever we engage in the work of God, whenever we seek to make an advance for the kingdom of God, whenever we seek to move into new territory, every time we advance, it is met with a counter-advance. Every victory is met with a new attack. Every offensive is met with a new counter-offensive. The opposition is all around. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. And this isn't just Nehemiah, this is Jesus. You remember after Jesus was baptized in the River Jordan, he goes out into the wilderness to pray and fast and to seek God, and he is immediately met with temptation from the Satan. And then after he comes out of the wilderness and he goes into the synagogue to teach, he is met with the demonized man who opposes his teaching. And then when he goes out of the synagogue and he goes out on the streets to heal the sick and he goes out to eat with sinners, he's met with opposition from the religious leaders. Even his own students, his own disciples, when he starts talking about the way of the cross, he's met with opposition in the mouth of Simon Peter who says, this shall never be. At every turn... As the work of God, as the kingdom of God advances, there is a counter-advance. There is a counter-offensive, a counter-attack. Have you found this to be in your own life? I mean, I, I think even if you are new to Christianity, maybe you're unfamiliar with Christianity, you recognize that when you just set to work to try to be a different kind of person, maybe a more loving person, full of joy, full of peace, a better husband, a better wife, a better parent, don't you find that it's just a battle? that at every turn, with every new advance, it seems like there's counter-advances. And of course, this is the Christian life. Jesus put it like this. He said, look, a servant is not better than his master. They opposed me. They came after me. They persecuted me. Don't you know they're gonna come after you? They will oppose you. They will persecute you. And so all throughout the New Testament, we get these statements like, look, so don't be surprised. And yet we often are surprised, aren't we? I talked to somebody after the first service and she said, you know, uh, you're, you're right. She said, I, uh, I know this stuff in my head, but she said, I still get the sense that if I'm doing it right, if I'm loving people, if I'm just being kind and generous and gracious and, and, and doing the, the right thing, that it should all just go well. But it's often not the case, amen? And it's true in our personal lives. It's true when we seek to cultivate character, 
when we seek to work on issues in our own lives, when we seek to overcome those old demons, when we seek to move forward in love, when we seek to overcome our anxiety or our depression or our self-centeredness or, or our greed or our materialism and we move into generosity and peace and kindness and self-control and love, it seems like there's always opposition, there's always challenges and if you overcome one, it's like something else surfaces all the time. When I was uh, in elementary school, sixth grade, I used to ride my bicycle up to the local liquor store because they had this video game called Double Dragon. Anybody here, child of the 80s, remember Double Dragon? But uh, Double Dragon, you know, I must have spent, you know, hundreds of dollars and quarters on Double Dragon. And you go through these levels, and at each level, there's this new, you know, kind of like ninja-like nemesis character, weird guy that jumps on the scene, and you got to kind of learn how to defeat that guy. And once you get that one figured out, it's like the next one arises, and then you got to learn how to defeat that one. And then you're like, yeah, I got that one. And then you get to the next level, and that's a Christian life oftentimes. You overcome your outbursts of anger, and then you find yourself struggling with depression, you overcome, you know, your, 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 your greed, and finally you started giving generously, but then all of a sudden you start having pride about how generous you are, and you're like, man, I, I just can't win. It's like at every turn, at every corner, opposition surfaces. It's true in our personal life. It's true in the church. It will be true for us as we move forward that as we seek, and can I be straight and honest with you? Like, this is sobering to me, if we're serious about engaging in the work of the kingdom of God, we will face opposition. Now, I don't like that. Last night, I was thinking about, I've been living with this text all week, I've been thinking about this, and quite frankly, I was, I was a little bit like sobered last night. Because I don't know about you guys, I don't like opposition. Personally, I like it when things go smooth, I like it when people like me, when everyone's on board. You know, like what I think is that, you know, if this is really God's thing, you know, we're all just going to rally all the troops and we're all going to be like, yeah, let's do this thing, you know, and all the volunteer work, all of the resources, everything you need is just going to pour right in. There's not going to be any complaining or backbiting or gossip or passive aggressive behavior among the church or any of the other ugly things that surface in church life. And we're just all going to like mobilize together and do this thing, people, right? And yet, whenever the work of God moves forward, there's counter advances. And so we need to be on guard. We need to be vigilant. We need to be ready. So that's the nature of the opposition. It is incessant. It's constant. It's all around. And we could also add that it's varied and that it's many. You know, in the book of Nehemiah, the attacks of the enemy changes from scene to scene. And so scene one, Sanballat and Tobiah, they come at them with jeering and with mockery. They're using words. It's not the last time that the enemy has used words to destroy God's people. Some of you have felt destroyed and hindered and discouraged by words. Words that you've received from a parent or words that you speak over yourself. Those words like fat or loser or unsuccessful or I'll never make it, I'll never do this, I'll never be good enough. And those words get us down. And those words came at the people of Israel and they were discouraged. 
And so sometimes the enemy uses words. And then you go into the next scene and they move from words, that doesn't do the trick, and now they move to a threat of violence. Chapter four, verse seven, but when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry, and look at verse eight, they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem. And there are places in the world today where the enemy is using the threat of violence to silence the movement of the gospel. It is places where, there are martyr, where martyrdom is alive and well and where the church deeply needs our prayers. So Sam Ballot and Tobiah use the threat of violence and then they move from words to violence. And then the work resumes and then they resort to a plot. They can't stop the work. The work goes on. And then look what it says in chapter six, verse one. Now when Sam Ballot and Tobiah, the Gresham there and the rest of the enemies heard that I built the wall, there was no breach left. It says, look at this in verse two. Sam Ballot and, Gre- and Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at the plain of Hakafirim, in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. So now the work is done, so they're like coming up with this intrigue and this plot to get Nehemiah secluded off by himself, and when he gets there, they're going to take his life. And look at what it says in verse 4, and they sent to me four times, and I never noticed that before. They sent to me four times. And then he says, at the fifth time, he's like, finally, he's like, look, give it up, I'm not going. But do you see how incessant it is? It just kept coming at him over and over and over and over again. And then finally, in the last part of chapter six, uh, the enemies resort to using a prophet in religion to get him taken away. In fact, they try to deceive him to go off to the temple and to kind of like go in seclusion and protection so that they might get a bad name for him. It's not the last time the enemy has used the church moving off into its own little bubble, secluded from true engagement of being salt and light in the world to hinder and to oppose the work of God. So this is the nature of the opposition. It is incessant. It is all around us. It is varied and many. And you say, I know, you're right. Like, tell me about it. This is my life, amen? Like, isn't this your experience? So the question, though, is how do we overcome the opposition? And I want to suggest that we can overcome the opposition by, number one, doing what Nehemiah does, and number two, by not doing what Nehemiah does. Did you catch that? You're like, come on, what are you talking about? All right, well, let's go. Look back at chapter four. I love, <laughs> this chapter is awesome. If, if you've not done so, you should go home and just spend some time in this chapter. It is stunning the degree of tenacity that Nehemiah has in the face of, I mean, you just think about those enemies surrounding him with well-armed militias. These people could really hurt him and they were on it. And Nehemiah, what does he do? Nehemiah is utterly vigilant. Look at what it says in in chapter four, verse 15. When our enemies had heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. So in spite of the opposition, they continue in the work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and the other half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. And those who carried their burdens were loaded in such a way that each, I love this verse, each 
were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work in one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. They're equipped with both the sword and the trowel. They're on guard against the enemies while they continue in the work. He is vigilant. He is not giving up. And then he is tireless. Look at verse 21. It says, and so we labored in the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. He says, we gave ourselves to this work from the crack of dawn until the stars came out and then at night they set a guard so that those who labored could sleep and wake up and work all day long and in this way, 23, so neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon in his right hand. You know, my, um, my old swim coach back in Albuquerque, I was part of a master swim team, he used to tell us, you know, he would, he would get to uh, this point, we would go on this workout for like 55 minutes, you know, you'd start out with like a 500, uh, kind of warm up, and then you might do another 1500 of doing this side of the other thing. And then you get to the point, let's say, where you're doing sprints, and at the end of the workout, he says, okay, now he says the workout has finally begun. Like, come on, man, we're all dying. We're about ready to give up. And then they said this, the workout doesn't begin until you feel like giving up. Because at that point, you've only reached your previous levels of fitness. When you push through and you push on and you actually build a greater level of fitness, he says, then you're actually developing endurance. There the workout begins. And it's so too with us. It is when we continue to press on in spite of the discouragement, in spite of the hardship, And look, I know for some of you, like you have felt at times like giving up. You have felt at times because you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed and it's like the prodigal still has not come home. And you've pursued the, the route of adoption and it just keeps falling through again and again. Or maybe you've opened up your home to a family member who is in need and then they've taken advantage of you or you've just struggled in various numbers of ways and it seems like it never, never ends Don't give up. Keep at it from the break of dawn till the stars come out. Your God will fight for you. You are not alone. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, was feeling overwhelmed by his enemies, by all of the opposition, by all of the struggle, and he felt it from within and from without. And it was in the midst of all of it that he penned that great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. And then he said, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils fulfilled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. 
The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. Our victory is not in any man, it is in Jesus Christ who is our strength. And this was Nehemiah's confidence, is that God would fight for him, and he kept encouraging the people with that word, and I encourage you with this word, God will fight with you. God will fight beside you. Now, I know you say, well, I keep praying. Well, Nehemiah kept praying, and the onslaughts continued. But he kept in the work. He prayed, and he trusted, and he kept active and moving and working, and that's what we need to do. We need to keep trusting and keep working. We need to keep praying and keep active and seeking to shape and fashion the church God wants us to. So we need to be like Nehemiah. Be like Nehemiah in his tenacity. Be like Nehemiah in his endurance. Be like Nehemiah in his trust that God would fight for him. But there's another sense in which you need not to be like Nehemiah in the face of the opposition. Notice Nehemiah prays in the face of the opposition. That was good. But notice what he prays. Chapter four, verse four. He says, hear our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Nehemiah is praying what has been called by scholars an imprecatory psalm. That's a fancy scholarly term to label. This is a psalm where you're crying out for God to do vengeance on your enemies. And I can just imagine, you know, in the, in the book of Psalms, there's a lot of these imprecatory Psalms, and they're praying all kinds of really some crazy stuff. God, I pray that you would break their teeth in, that their babies would be dashed against the rocks. And you just wonder, like, what kind of music were those Psalms set to? Like, what did that sound like, you know? But of course, these are the Psalms that are sung by a marginalized, powerless people who are suffering great injustice and oppression. It's, a, it's the kind of psalms that you're prone to sing when you're faced with injustice yourself. I remember back after 9-11, uh, I think it was Tim McGraw came out with a song called Brought to You by the U.S. of A. You guys remember this song? And, uh, you know, it's talking about Statue of Liberty started shaking his fist and it's gonna be like the world is raining down on you. You know, it's like brimstone and fire was like the bombs, you know, are gonna rain down on you to all of our enemies, you know. And, 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 you know, I'm a follower of Jesus. I know that Jesus said, love your enemies, you know, pray for those who persecute you. But I was singing that song and I don't even like country music and you shouldn't either. But... <laughs> This is the song Nehemiah is singing. God, bring down judgment upon their heads. Exercise vengeance upon those sorry suckers over there. We don't like them. But you know, the greater Nehemiah, the true Nehemiah who left the true palace in eternity and entered into the true rubble of humanity, to bear our own sin and shame, to enter into our darkness, he taught us a better way to pray. Where Nehemiah prayed for God's vengeance upon his enemies, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. 
On the cross, all of God's enemies came against him. The greatest religious force of the day, Judaism, the greatest political power the world had ever seen, the Rome, all colluded together to put the Son of God to death with extreme injustice. And he bears it all upon himself. He bears upon himself the weight of injustice and sin and darkness and shame. And he bears it upon himself. He doesn't send it back out on their own heads and circulation. He bears it in cruciform, suffering, self-giving love to bring it to a final and a complete end. And this is how God does victory over his enemies. It is not with violence. It is not with vengeance. It is not by returning the same on their own heads. It is with sin-bearing, death-defeating, sacrificial, self-giving love. And it is this love, it is this love on the cross that when it goes down in your heart, you discover that unconquerable, undefeatable love that will never let you go. You know, one of our family's favorite stories that we've read, you know, is the, is the Harry Potter series. And in the Harry Potter series, there's this really fascinating thread that kind of carries through the whole narrative, and it's the thread of the power of self-giving love over hate. And in the story, the arch nemesis is Lord Voldemort, and he's like the Lord of Darkness. And do what he can, he can't destroy young Harry Potter. And yet, and there's this question, why can't he defeat Harry Potter? And the answer that's disclosed in the story is because Harry Potter received a mark on his head as a result of his mother laying down her life on his behalf. He was marked with sacrificial, self-giving love. And it was that love that overcame the dark Lord and that the dark Lord never understood. And toward the end of the story, after Harry was marked by this love that kept him in spite of the opposition, at the end of the story, Harry learns to demonstrate this love for his friends and he gives his own life and takes, Lord Voldemort in in essence kills him and then he comes back and he ultimately defeats him because as the story says, there's one line that's taken from the Bible, love is stronger than death. And friends, it is when our own hearts, our lives, our imaginations, our emotions are marked with the self-giving, sacrificial love of God for you in Christ that you have the power to overcome, you have the strength to endure in the midst of it all. And it is this sacrificial, self-giving love that we also see the pattern of how we can move out in face of opposition against us. You know, how do you, how do you feel when somebody opposes you? Like, what do you want to do to them? Like, I get emails sometimes, I don't know if you guys know this, some of you send emails sometimes. I don't know if you know this, <laughs> but, but they, they can be, you can receive biting comments, biting emails. And my impulse when I receive this sort of thing is to send it back. But Jesus has taught us a different way. It's the way of bearing the wrong and extending forgiveness and love. And it is this kind of love that overcomes hate. Martin Luther King Jr. put it like this. He said, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. 
Where did he learn that? Or darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. Or what about this? I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word in reality. And why did he believe that? Because it was the unarmed, unconditional, cross-bearing love of God in Christ that was put to death that God vindicated on the third day when God raised Jesus from the dead and he says, this is the way of being in the world. This is how hate and darkness and the opposition of God is overcome. It is by bearing wrongs. It's by extending love. It is by moving out into the world in this way. And may God enable us to move towards each other in that way. May he enable you to move towards your children and your husband and your wife with that kind of love. May he enable us to live and, and to move out among our neighbors and our coworkers and the people we go to school with with that kind of love so that we might be a community that bears true witness to this good news. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.